Some call it uh, sharing your faith. Some just use the, the language of great commission. Some call it uh, evangelism, uh, discipleship, or, or witnessing. The simplest way I know to explain it is in Ephesians, God expresses this great desire, His great desire is to draw all people to Himself, literally all humanity to Himself. Because of sin, all of us have strayed from God, yet through the grace and blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, God has made a way for all of us to return to Him. Amen. This is God's heartbeat. This is God's number one desire. This is what he wants most. This was his plan from the beginning, and his plan has become our mission. The life mission of every Christian is to grow followers of Jesus Christ. That's the language here we use at Aspen Grove. To make disciples. It's not a mission just for some uh, stodgy old theologian sitting in a, in a library somewhere. And it's not the mission of, of Christian scholars, but it is the mission of every single one of us. And it is this mission that Aspen Grove is leaning into this year. You know what happens when you lean on the edge of your chair, right? This is the message. This is the mission that, that, that we are pursuing. And everything we're doing this year, from a leadership standpoint, from a direction standpoint, is all focused on how each and every one of us can fulfill God's mission for us, this life on mission. It's not something we do on our own. We, we know that, we proclaim that, but through the blood and grace of Jesus Christ, our mission is to draw all people to God. Amen. So one of the things we want to do, and we're going to start doing over the next few weeks, is we want to open the conversation up a little bit. So uh, when I talk to Christians about ideas of discipleship, there's, I, I get a lot of very similar reactions. Everyone agrees, every Christian I've ever met agrees that discipleship is what we are supposed to be doing. They agree that discipleship is a good idea, that it's biblical, but I don't really know how to do it. And even, uh, so we've been in this series for a few weeks talking about discipleship and growing followers of Jesus Christ and what does that mean and what does that look like. And, and when I've had some of the conversations I've had with some of you, it's been like, uh, I'm so glad you're teaching everyone else how to do this because I don't have any clue how to do this. Do any of you feel like that? Uh, like, uh, and some people talk about discipleship as it's this, this level over their heads, like I'm holding something up and Megan can't jump up and reach it. You know, it's like, I, I just, I, I can't get there. It's, it's beyond me. It, it's past me. I think it's good. I just, I just don't ever see myself getting there. And so one of the things we wanted to do is open up the conversation. So I brought my phone, of course, and I'm going to set the timer for five minutes and I just want you to turn to those around you, and, I, and literally, we just want you to have a conversation around this idea of discipleship. And so, to prime the well a little bit, we're going to give you a couple of questions. Um, like I said, I, I can't give you the whole, whole teaching time because I'm selfish with my time, uh, but I'll give you a few minutes, and what I want you to talk about today is just, just really two questions. Uh, one is, uh, what are your plans for the hospitality challenge? Because we're serious about it. We want every single one of you to participate in it. So what are your plans? What are you thinking? Uh, if you're like most of us, you're a week behind. So 
now it's time to catch up. What would you like to do? What would be your dream to do before February 9th? Have someone else in your home. So what are your plans for the hospitality challenge? And then really the big one is, what can a challenge like this teach us about God's mission for us? You got it? I think we even have those two questions. Maybe we can put them on the screen. Maybe. Maybe I didn't save them. Oh, there they are. All right, perfect. <laughs> Don't trick me like that. Um, so yeah, what are your plans for the hospitality challenge, and what can this challenge teach us about God's mission for our lives? All right, I'm setting the timer. Five minutes. You ready? You know what you're supposed to do. Everybody know? This means you talk to other people. Got that? Okay, like, <laughs> like it's okay. All right, go ahead. I'm starting. Okay, okay, time's up. How did you do? Who wants more time? Who's thinking this is the best sermon I've ever heard? How did your conversations go? Did, uh, did you see inhibitions start to rise up out of the surface already? Why does hospitality make us feel uncomfortable? It happens, doesn't it? Um, even having a conversation with the people immediately around us, like all of a sudden it's like, oh, he wants us to talk. Oh. In, uh, in Matthew, in the, in the first gospel, in, in chapter 9, Jesus is, uh, is walking along and he sees a man behind a tax collector's booth. Now tax collectors are, uh, in the first century at least, are... Uh, uh, not everybody's favorite person. So the Roman government needed a way to tax, needed a way to, to, to put taxes on to, to, to people. They, they'd overcome, they, they were the conquering force, the, the occupying nation. And so the, the people of Israel, the people of the ancient Near East, lived under the Roman government, and the Romans wanted to make sure they got their taxes. But they needed some way to infiltrate the Jewish culture and the Jewish community. They, they needed spies. They needed traitors. Because how would a Roman know if all of the Jews had paid their taxes or not? So they needed someone from the inside to switch teams and play for them. And so they developed this system of, of tax collectors. And essentially what they did is they would go into a Jewish community and they would offer the job, the position of tax collector to the highest bidder. So you could bid, you could buy this position of being a tax collector. And especially if you're a Jew, you would step up and you would say, okay, I, I want this job. I'll spend this much money. And after the Romans hire you as a tax collector, you, you won the job, you've, you've bought the position now you and the Roman government behind closed doors, the tax collector and the Roman government behind closed doors, determine a set amount of money to collect every month. All right? They negotiate a tax. Like, I don't know how many people you're going to meet or how many people you're going to collect from or, or how much you're going to collect or, or there's no percentage rate. Just Rome wants our cut and our cut is X. Right? Anything the tax collector collects over and above that negotiated amount, who does it belong to? The tax collector. 
And so what the Roman government did essentially with tax collectors was legalized extortion. Because who else knew that agreed upon amount? Only the tax collector. Like I said, they were not everybody's favorite person. In general, in the ancient Near East, tax collectors are incredibly corrupt and incredibly wealthy. They were despised by Jews who were fiercely national because they, uh, they were traitors. They'd switched teams and were now playing for the occupying government. And uh, by, by Jewish law, a tax collector was kicked out of worshiping in the temple. They weren't allowed to go to the temple. They were debarred even from the synagogues. And according to Leviticus, uh, tax collectors were associated with animals who are unclean. Remember, Leviticus talks about clean and unclean things. Tax collectors fall in that unclean category, not to be touched, not to be messed with, not to be trifled with. Tax collectors are even, in Scripture, associated with robbers and murderers. And Jesus, in the first gospel, approaches a man sitting in his tax collector booth. Probably, we think, maybe in the area of Capernaum, which is this major trade route, traffic route. And so, if you can imagine all these goods and sources coming from, from, from south and Egypt and coming across the mountains from Asia and then coming from the north through, through what is modern-day Turkey and Greece, everything kind of collides in this one place, this one place, and this very, very savvy tax collector puts his booth right in the middle. Why? To tax everyone and anyone that walks by. And I don't know if this was the, the first time Jesus had, had passed this particular booth. Probably not. Can you see people like, I see this booth a long ways away and just kind of steering around. But Jesus, for whatever reason, goes straight to the booth. And to the man sitting behind it says, follow me and be my disciple. And people are stunned. Despite a... Uh, 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 the fact that Jesus calls this man, the, maybe the most astonishing thing about this story is that the man accepts. He stands up from his collection booth and follows Jesus. Think about the implications of this move. Because at the end of the month, who is still going to be expecting their cut from this man? The Roman government is not, not really known for their forgiveness, right? Yet this man answers the call of Jesus and stands up. The next few verses in uh, chapter 9 tells us that now this ex-tax collector does something, goes even a step further... And it now invites Jesus to dinner at his house. Now, meals in the ancient Near East, this is a big deal. Like uh, when you have people in your home, when you bring a guest into your home, this is, this is a very special occasion. It is a time to honor someone else. But this is, a, this is a different kind of meal. Because at this meal are all kinds of other tax collectors. Not only has he invited Jesus, but he's invited his tax collector Friends, they have to be friends with each other. Why? 
They're not friends with anybody else, right? It says that this meal are other tax collectors and notorious sinners. And immediately you begin to see Jesus' intention, Jesus' mission for the world. He, he, he hung it right out there for everyone to see because Jesus is the man who, who meets with Roman soldiers, who, who heals the sick and the lame, the touches lepers, and spends time even in the, in the, the vicinity of demon-possessed people. Uh, do you remember the story of Jesus who meets a Samaritan woman? Not only does he talk to a woman who's on her own, she's a woman with a really shady past. She's had five husbands, and the husband she's, or the man she's living with now is not her husband. And when the other disciples see Jesus talking to her, they say, what are you doing? You can't talk to her. And now Jesus is at a party, is at a naughty people party, in the home of a tax collector. And the Pharisees who are standing around, the, the religious police, who have one purpose, and that is to make sure that everyone follows the rule to the letter. And, and if everyone would just follow the, the laws of God to the letter, if everyone would just follow every single detail, every single law, then God's kingdom would come and everything would be happy. And so anyone not following those laws of God, is just they're just messing up the whole system and we can't have anything to do with them. And the Pharisees are keeping close tabs on Jesus, and they see him enter into this naughty people party. And Scripture says, um, I think it's in a, a, I think verse, uh, yeah, there it is, verse 13. Or, I'm sorry, it's, uh, go to a verse before that, if I, maybe I didn't put it in there. The Pharisees' question is, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Scum. And Jesus responds with verse 13. For I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. This word call is um, it's a, it's a t technical Greek word for inviting a guest into a house. That's call in the New Testament. For I have come to invite into my house, to invite to a meal, not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. That word call, that, that invitation into a home is the same word uh, that Jesus uses when he tells a story in chapter 22 of this, same, of this same gospel. Maybe you remember the story, there's a great king and he's prepared a wedding feast for his son. Do you remember this? The invitations have gone out, and as the feast is prepared, as the fatted calf is, is, is slaughtered, and as all, every place setting becomes in place, the king says the feast is ready, the, the celebration is ready, and he sends his servants out to collect everyone who's been invited. But what happens? All of those people who receive the fancy gold invitation, they make up the lamest excuses ever. Well, I had to wash my hair, or I don't know, like... They come up with these horrible excuses, but they go a step further. And some of the people invited take the messengers and, and, and assault them and even kill the messengers. And word gets back to the king. He sends his army out to handle 
those ungrateful people who have been invited. But still, he has a banquet prepared. He has a, he has a whole meal, a whole feast prepared. What's he to do? And remember what happens in the story. He sends his servants back out again, saying, go to the street corners, invite, call, use that, hear that word again, call everyone you see. And the servants went out and brought in everyone they could find, the good and bad alike. And the banquet hall was filled with guests. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like an invitation to a party. Do you see that? The kingdom of heaven is about this invitation that invites all kinds of people. So my dad this last week told me this story of my dad works at the Church of Christ um, in, in Alabama, a big Church of Christ, and, and he told me this story, and I couldn't believe it because I grew up Church of Christ, and I know those people. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. So they had, a, they had a speaker come in recently and talk to their church, and, and her, her name is Sally Gary, so already I'm like, what? How is this possible? But her name is Sally Gary, and um, I don't know if you've heard of her, but she, uh, she is a Christian. She's the author of the book, Loves God, Likes Girls. Now we're getting really interesting. Because Sally Gary is a woman who has same-sex attraction, same-sex feelings. That's the title of her book, Loves God, Likes Girls. And Sally would tell you, and, and you can discover this from her book, that she does not believe that God has made her this way. And yet here she is, with these feelings, struggling with these feelings. And she says, and my dad told me this, and I, and I just couldn't believe it. She challenged that church. She said, how am I to live a celibate life or how am I to live a life with these feelings without the community of the church? You see, somewhere along the way, the church, all of us, we lost our way. We did. We did. And somewhere along the way, churches and Christians we began to refer to people like Sally using that great Pharisee word. What did they call the people Jesus ate with? Scum. And Sally said, how am I, how am I ever going to move through this? How am I ever going to move through what, what I'm dealing with and what I'm feeling and what I'm struggling with? As long as the doors to the church, as long as the doors to the community that the church offers are shut to me. And the question is, like the Pharisees, how often have we been so consumed with our own personal holiness that we neglect to help those caught in the trap of sin? Too many churches have become hospitals that allow only the well filled with doctors who refuse to visit the sick for fear that they themselves might be infected. 
And yet Jesus said, my mission is to invite. My mission is to call those who are sick. I think Jesus would say, my mission, I'm here to call people like Sally. He would go on to say just a few verses later in the same passage in chapter 9, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Why is the, the hospitality challenge, why is something like that so important to a church? Because the, maybe, maybe because the root of hospitality is the word hospital. It is the glorious life mission of a doctor to go to those who need healing, right? It is the noble mission of a doctor to serve not just those who are well, but those who are sick. And it is the glorious life mission of the church, of everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to seek out those who are far from God and invite them, call them to Come near. I want to invite the worship team back up. And as they're coming, I want to share just a few final words. So you remember the, the tax collector that Jesus spent time with? Jesus walked right up to his booth and called this tax collector at, at great personal risk. Called this tax collector to, to come and to follow him. Do you remember the tax collector's name? What was it? Matthew, who had become an apostle, a disciple of Jesus, author of a self-named gospel, maybe one of the most important books that has ever been written in the history of the world. More than likely, when you think of Jesus, when you picture him in your mind's eyes, it is because of the words, it is because of the language of this ex-tax collector who was given an invitation by Jesus. The way we are going to change the world the way we are to draw people who are far from God and bring them near, the way God's life mission for us is going to be accomplished is by inviting people into our homes. God's life mission for us is going to be accomplished by inviting people into our lives as simple and as, as easy as eating with other people. God's life mission is going to be accomplished through us when we practice hospitality. And I'll tell you too that Jesus' actions weren't accidental or haphazard. Um, I doubt very seriously that uh, Jesus just happened to be walking by this tax collector booth. And I, and I doubt very seriously that that maybe even this was the first conversation Jesus ever had with this tax collector. My guess is there were seeds of this planted long, long before the moment that Matthew accepts the call of Jesus. It's just my guess. I can't prove that from Scripture. But my guess is that this wasn't the first time Jesus had talked to this Matthew. 
But when Jesus woke up, he probably thought, maybe today is the day. Jesus knew what his mission was. Is there any doubt of that? Every action of Jesus shows that he knows exactly what his purpose is. How about you? Are you ready to follow the example of Jesus, to answer his call? Like Matthew, are, are, are you ready to stand up and leave everything you know or thought you knew? Don't you think Matthew had to reorient every priority in his life to answer this call? And it's time for us to reorient our priorities, even as a church, as Christians, so that we may be doctors to the sick, so, we, so that we may be the ones who show mercy and grace and forgiveness, so that we can invite those who are far from God into our own homes, into our own lives, into our family. Jesus sees you sitting in your little booth on the side of the road, right? We've all been there. Jesus saw you right where you were at, sitting in your own little world. And this morning, the call he gave to Matthew is the exact same call he gives to us. Jesus Christ is calling this church. He's calling you, follow me. Be my disciples. I think Jesus is calling you to live a life on mission. So my question is, is there anything breaking loose in you when I talk about this? Is there any movement in, inside of there? Or are you just kind of locked down? Or is God's Spirit doing a work in you even right now? Is this something you've, uh, you've put on the shelf or, 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 or you've been denying for a while? Is is there any part of you that's coming alive when I talk about life on mission? Does it make you nervous and excited at the same time? Do you feel the energy of God's Spirit compelling you on this mission because it is there? Maybe it feels awkward because uh, uh, you're not leaning into this mission. God is pushing you with both hands. This morning, the invitation is for you. Jesus says, come and follow me. He invites you into his family to draw you and I near to God. How will you respond? Um, we've been doing something not, not very good lately. Uh, at the end of a teaching, so I give everyone a chance to respond, and I kind of move to the back, and the worship team plays a song. Uh, but but you guys aren't responding, and, and, and I think you're missing something here. Sure, it's an opportunity. Maybe you want to give your faith, and give your life to Christ, and we want to honor that and celebrate that and give you the chance. But maybe you've just had a crummy week. And if you just had a crummy week, or, or maybe you're looking for a job, or, or maybe your attitude hasn't been on point, this is your chance. Right? I'm going to invite today, I'll invite the other elders to come back. We just want to pray for you, and some of you aren't taking advantage of this opportunity. Are you hearing me? 
Like this is our chance to, to pray for you, to lift you up, to, to intercede for you. And it doesn't have to be the biggest thing in the, in the world, but we think you're important. And the best thing that we can do today in this time, in this service, is to place your cares, is to place your concerns before God. So we don't care what it is. If you're, if you're struggling with this teaching or if there's just something else going on that's been irking you or, or maybe there's something going on between husbands and wife, whatever it is, we want you to respond. We, we, we cherish and love the opportunity to pray for you. And, it, and if uh, our prayers are taking too long, the worst thing, they're just going to keep singing this song over and, and we don't care. We don't care. So maybe God has put it on your heart to respond today. I'm going to invite the other elders and myself to come back. And if we can pray for you, we, we, we want to do that. Why don't you stand as we sing together?